<coughs> nice way to start the episode. <laughs> You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who so that you don't have to. Simon. Hello, I'm Lee. And uh, as you may have gathered, Lee's back in the box with Stephen Moffat this week. Best place for him. So it's just the three of us for this episode, although we're probably going to be uh, reading some things in from Lee at some point. And for the next 60 seconds, Simon, you're going to be talking. <laughs> Don't you worry, Mark. It'll be you later. Oh, no. Simon, you're going to be talking about the ultimate foe. The ultimate foe, the the final episode in Trial of the Time Lord, if I remember That's right. That's correct. Um, oh, what can I say? The ultimate foe. Well, you've wasted 10 seconds <laughs> on just saying the title so far, <laughs> so well done yeah. you. <laughs> um, well, thinking about it now, it was such a, um, a mad, obviously being set in the Matrix, essentially, um, it kind of relates to a lot of the Stephen Moffat episodes we've been seeing lately, the sort of random things happening, people going down in quicksand and really odd things happening, the sort of thing you might imagine in some of the latest series. Um, and if I remember rightly, uh, Mr. Popplewick, uh, the chap who played him, died recently, which is very sad. Um, Jeff I've gone completely random here. And... Uh, I actually quite liked it. It was all a bit odd. I didn't quite get the idea of the uh, the Valiard being this uh, sort of version of the Doctor between regenerations. I didn't quite know how that works in in things, but one of those things you didn't think about too much because it doesn't make any sense anyway. Um, which and funny enough, you've actually done a minute, but that's going to tie in with something we're going to talk about today, probably, isn't it? The oh, Watcher. Good. Ah, yes. Because we're going to be, today's episode is the sequel to our Marmite episode. We did an episode called Marmite, I was going to say a few weeks ago, but actually it's a few months ago because it was quite early in the run. And during that episode, we were supposed to be building up to what I consider is probably the biggest Marmite event in Doctor Who. And that's the handover between Graham Williams and John Nathan Turner. In other words, season 17 versus season 18. Mm. Mm. And in fact, if you want to put it probably into... Uh, the kind of terms that would probably make more sense, given what we're going to talk about, it's basically Douglas Adams versus Christopher H. Bidmead, isn't it? Not that much of a contest, then, in my opinion. <laughs> well, that's what we're going to get to, and we're going to decide, I suppose, how we feel about it. Mm. But before we do, we're going to do emails, because we've got a lot of emails to get through. So here's Steve from Manchester. Before I start, can I just assume that when I say you, I'm referring to the four of you in general? Yours, JR, is still the only voice that I can single out. Perhaps I could suggest an idea. 
Okay. Couldn't Mark, Lee and Simon spend the whole of each podcast doing their stuff in a zippy voice, a sea devil voice and some other one? Then I could tell you apart. Come on, Mark, Actually, what can you do? Oh, yeah, go on, Mark. Impressionations. Louis Armstrong, go on. <laughs> uh, Homer Simpson, go on then. Was no! That... Yes, but can you keep that up and do anything else? No. So you can't use that for no, anything else? So that was just quite gonna... impressive, though. I, that was almost like somebody slipped in a sample there. <clears throat> give us a... Oh, just give a try <laughs> at Louis Armstrong. Forbidden donut. <laughs> Was that Homer? Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. Somewhat limiting then. <clears throat> Steve says, actually, the zippy voice might be more appropriate for you, JR, as you seem to be the one constantly on the verge of saying to the other three, I'm asking the questions. That was pretty well. cool. zippy. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm asking the questions. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. <laughs> oh, okay. In the next really podcast, well. you can play me as zippy. Okay. Uh, My right. brain hurts. Steve, uh, going back over a few episodes, he was away, so I think he's actually listened to the last sort of three or four episodes pretty much on the trot. Regarding the JNT episode, very much agree that we only object to... Oh, no, very much agree that we only object so much to the campness and pantones because the stories aren't that great. Maybe if the stories were ace, we'd be happy with the campery, or maybe if the stories were great, we wouldn't have to resort to campery. Uh... Also agreed that whichever of you it was who said that people only hail JNT as a wizard producer of the show, as a wizard promoter of the show, because they can't say he produced amazing stories. It's a fair point. Regarding our other episode, I think the, the other's episode did eventually begin to drag a little, but only by your own high standards. It would be a standard good quality podcast from anyone else. Thanks, Steve. Yeah. Perhaps the problem is that a Doctor Who-loving audience might not take too kindly to women who are clearly too fond of their fellas to openly say how sad they think their Doctor Who obsession is. <laughs> <laughs> Don't think Simon's missus had any problems with that. No, not at all. <laughs> the Amy in the Microwave anecdote was an eye-opener. Why does anyone buy those action figures? I stopped short at a radio-controlled Dalek and a TARDIS money box. We're going to have to do an episode on the mm. toys one day, I yeah, think. So, yeah. uh, we've all got lots of them. We have. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I've seen all four of you on video now and have to say that none of you has God. any right to go around being a body fascist. <laughs> <laughs> I was appalled that you kept addressing Lee's poor son as thin. I think oh, it's it, it a there. perfect right to be body fascist, actually. <laughs> <laughs> your, your assorted partners come across as long-suffering, but kindly so. Pretty much it. Mm-hmm. Well... And regarding the 1978 episode, the Mary Tam, Key to Time one, I do enjoy these podcasts focusing on a particular season, he says, which is good news because this is about two particular seasons in a way and next week's will be about one too. Um, that way, there'll always be at least one story that the listener will like and just as importantly, at least one that they'll dislike. Listening to someone tear into a story you hate is just as much fun as them rhapsodising about one you love. In fact, actually, it's often far more fun. Had a good giggle at all the names, like Wirren, that you imagined wrong <laughs> pronunciation for by reading the Target novelizations before seeing the show. Apparently, until the Harry Potter films came out, millions of kids, and especially in the US, had imagined that Harry's friend was called Hermione and had quite a struggle <laughs> accepting the correct pronunciation. Yeah. 
There's a very funny episode of the US Bigger on the Inside podcast where one of the guys is looking forward to the story they'll be watching for the following week's podcast and keeps pronouncing kinder as you'd pronounce an abbreviation of kinder. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> OMG, says Steve. I can't believe that the Midsummer Murders pathologist was the guy who played Drax. I mean, it's obvious once you point it out. I shan't ever be able to watch Midsummer Murders again without expecting the following exchange. See you back at the station, George. Remember me to Gallifrey. (laughs) (laughs) One of you mentioned that Tara was one of the few stories which you liked just as well as an adult as you did when a lad. I was surprised that there would be so few. I can think of lots of Doctor Who stories which I enjoy exactly the same as an adult as I did when I was a boy. For instance, Time Flight, Time Lash, (laughs) Underworld, (laughs) The Twin (laughs) Dilemma, and anything with Mel in it. Very funny, Steve. Uh, oh, and I just got another email from him shortly after that saying, this is quite funny, so it's well worth carrying on. I do like Steve's emails. I forgot to mention that an email which you read out from Ben Schneider was really nostalgic for me. Ben mentioned that in the old days of Outpost Gallifrey, he saw someone suggesting that the solution to the problem of dodgy SFX in Classic Who was to tell newbies to ignore the rat. Mm. I'm 99% sure that the someone in question was me, says Steve. In the spaces between my multiple bands from Outpost Gallifrey, whenever there was a forum thread moaning about bad SFX, I used to post a mantra which was inspired by both the Abominable Snowman and Planet of the Spiders, and which was for a long time my profile signature on Outpost Gallifrey. Om, Mani, ignore the rat, pardon me, Om. (laughs) (laughs) The trick is to repeat this mantra ad infinitum until you either drown out the SFX critics or until you attain a blissful trance in which you cease to notice the giant rat, the Merka, the Shrivenzal, etc. And yes, it can also work on Dodo Chaplet. (laughs) He's got a thing about Dodo. Yeah, he's got a thing about Dodo. (laughs) This mantra has the virtue of being almost infinitely variable according to need. Om, Mani, ignore Mel, pardon me, Om. Doesn't work. Om, Mani, ignore Adric's unconvincing walking, pardon me, Om. (laughs) Om, Mani, ignore Mike Yates' mincing walk, pardon me, Om. Om. (laughs) This is Steve from (laughs) Manchester, right? Om Mani, ignore tenants burp swallowing, pardon me, om. <laughs> om Mani, ignore the hand on Sutex cushion, pardon me, om. <laughs> om Mani, ignore everything about Underworld, pardon me, om. And finally, Om Mani, ignore Simon's sex face, pardon me, om. Ooh. He's making it now. He definitely That's is That's what that now. noise was. We're back to the others episode, aren't we? Yeah. Uh, we did get a very brief... Uh, email or tweet on a piece of paper that I've lost. I've got so many pieces of paper here. How can I have lost it? First time writer. So Mark Smith on Twitter just said, just caught up listening to all of the Blue Box podcasts. Easily one of the best ones around. Great stuff. Oh, thank you. Looking forward to the next one as the key to time is one of my favourites. So we hope you enjoyed that one, Mark. Mm, Good name as well, Mark Smith. Even better if it's Marquis Smith. Oh, I went to school with a guy called Mark Smith and I never thought that was a good name. <laughs> marks in general, they're usually one of two kinds, aren't they? Marks. Yeah, yeah. Either lovely or complete twonks. Yeah. yeah. In other words, they're either high marks or low marks. Exactly. <laughs> yes. But no, Marky e. Smith, obviously the best of the Mark Smiths. 
Right, and I'm fighting my way through sheets of paper to find an email to kick off our season 17 versus... Can I just say, Marky Smith will make a brilliant Dalek. He's definitely got that tone of voice, hasn't he? He has. Oh, no. He'll probably turn up in no a electronic. <laughs> <laughs> He'd be one of the Daleks in the asylum. He was. Right, uh, well, let's take an email to kick off our season 17 versus season 18. This is from Mr. Peter. No matter what fan opinion has to say about season 17, the cheapness, the out-of-place comedy, etc., I have always loved it. I loved it as a kid, and I love it today. I am not a big DVD buyer, but I have found myself buying each and every story. Obviously, City of Death is an all-time classic, but as a kid, I was thrilled with the Nymon, intrigued by the creature from the pit, mazed by the world of Eden, and would defend to this day that Destiny of the Daleks is one of the best Dalek stories ever made, with great effects thrilling cliffhangers, and a thumping good story to boot. In time, fandom will re-evaluate it. Really, he says. Uh, yes, season 18 is very distinctive, fresh and exciting, but nothing quite beats the joy and excitement of the previous season. Surely Tom and Lala in love make the dream team. Yeah. Yeah, yeah he's got a point. He has got a point. Actually, let's address Destiny of the Daleks just mm-hmm. for a second. Um, I mean, I'm assuming both of you know it. Which one, sorry? Destiny, Destiny. of the Daleks. Destiny, yes. The yes, Davros right rematch. Well. As a kid, I was completely drawn in by that story. Yeah, I loved it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, loved it. and even as an adult, there are other things about it it's I appreciate. It's a fair amount of hype. I mean, this is, this is the thing with Destiny. Was, it was obviously, it was the return of Davros. It wasn't just the Daleks. It was Davros as well. And it was a new is... Romana as well. <clears throat> yeah, that was... Of course, the Davros thing came as a complete shock when I watched it when I was a kid. Oh, right. Because that, he doesn't turn up till right at the end of episode two. And there was no this publicity about Davros yeah, coming actually, back. Yeah, actually, I do remember watching it and thinking, is Davros going to turn up? Is Davros going to turn up? <clears throat> and then when he did, yeah. nice surprise. Was there a reason why David Goodison had to come in? I assume the original actor wasn't available for... I think so. I mm. mean, I'm sh- almost certainly he wasn't available. I couldn't say without looking at why. That's my only beef with it, really. I is, don't... That, is that the one where he wore the mask that was mm. made for the other guy? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I don't think it just about works. I think the one it's thing... It's okay. I'm, I'm not knocking it, but it's just... I think people go on about his performance, but I think the one thing that sells his performance short is that they forgot to put the um, effect on his voice. Yeah. So, yeah. actually, you've just got an undisguised voice as Davros. Mm. So, it's not his performance that's at fault. It's the effects guys who've cocked it up. Wouldn't be hard. They haven't redone it on the DVD, have they? Redubbed no, it? No. Wouldn't be hard, would it? Well, no, but I suppose it's a mono soundtrack. It might be difficult to isolate. Andrew, they managed for Day of the Daleks, didn't they? And that's a mono yeah. soundtrack as well. So. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's all about budget, isn't it? Depends where the budget mm. comes from and where it's going to. Destiny... Moment, oh, sorry, go on. I was going to say, at the moment, it seems to be going towards uh, animating some of the missing stories, which I'm quite chuffed with. Yeah, well, every DVD has an individual budget, though, so it's not mm. like the budget from Destiny would have gone on. Do you think they could animate some of the rubbish stories, keep the soundtrack, but actually... Things like Nightmare of Eden? Yeah. <laughs> I like Nightmare of Eden. Animate I like Warriors Nightmare of, of Eden, too. <laughs> okay, I'm going to bring up an example, seeing as we're on Destiny of the Daleks, mm. of something that, for me, epitomises the approach they took in Season 17, and I'm going to counterbalance that with an example of something from Season 18 that I think epitomises the approach there, too. Okay, cool. So bear with me and uh, see if you agree with this. Destiny of the Daleks. 
Mary Tam, she's not coming back. So they decide to bring in Lala Ward. I think Mary Tam even suggested it. Mark, you'll know. I don't think it's addressed specifically in her book, which I, re- I listened to recently, the audio version of it, but they did become quite firm friends when they were filming together. So whether that influenced the decision, I'm not sure. Maybe. I'm sure I've read somewhere that Mary Tam, or seen on a DVD extra, that Mary mm. Tam suggested they keep Lala Ward on. Anyway, point is, Mary Tam's not coming in to do a regeneration. Lala Ward is going to be the new Romana. Now, there are any number of ways they could have dealt with that regeneration. But, bless him, Douglas Adams does it. And my <laughs> God, is that one of the most controversial moments in the classic series when Romana goes through a you know, plethora <laughs> of bodies in one of the silliest, most ridiculous sequences of the classic series before Tom decides on, uh, you know, Dr. Ford decides, oh, that'll do because she comes in dressed as him. <laughs> That's just, it is. Without any shadow of a doubt, completely and utterly stupid. It's Whether fun, you though. like it or not, yes. And that's the complete antithesis of season 18. Well, this is where I was going. That epitomizes season 17. Mm. Because everywhere in season 17, uh, even in the most serious bits that should have been in the stories, there's always mm. this heightened sense of the ridiculous. For me, the the key difference between the two... Season 17, they've got no money, really. They're relying on Douglas Adams to kind of knock stuff together, which, bless him, he's a great writer, but I'm not sure he was the best script editor by quite some way. But they're fun episodes. They're fun stories. He's an ideas man, isn't he? Yeah, whereas season 18, it's glossy. It's had a remake. It's had a new um, credit sequence, title sequence. Yeah, yeah. You were telling me off for using the wrong term. Restyling. Well, it's a new title sequence and a new credit sequence, Mark. So you get a pass on that <sighs> one. Uh, and obviously new Have theme. Have you just done a Levo and cut me <laughs> off halfway through making my analogy? No, because I was still making my point when you uh, chipped in. Oh, I'm similar. I've been told. <laughs> and then, yeah, and then you've got all this sort of perceived glossiness of season 18, but all the fun's been sucked out of it. They're going for this super sort of bringing back the science in science fiction and really going to town on that, and it just gets a bit dull. Right, my, I was going to make a much bigger point. Go on. Probably, but no, I'll probably come back to that. Come then. on, no, no, do what you're going to do. No, 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 if I leave this point for a bit later on. Then, okay. Because I was going to give you an example of something in season 18 mm-hmm. that, to me, epitomises the Christopher Bidmead, John Nathan Turner approach. Yeah. You know, this goes back, actually, to the John Nathan Turner podcast we did what three weeks ago yeah because this is again we're going to be talking about john nathan turner aren't we i mean superficially on the surface the biggest changes between season 17 and 18 were the title and credit sequences and the music mm-hmm. both the title music and the, and the incidental, incidental music yeah. but whether you like the one better than the other or not mm. those are really just superficial it's it's in the writing and in the production values that everything's actually changed. Yeah. John Nathan Turner's actually managed to get a hike in the budget out of them. Mm. And two extra episodes as well. So Let's in- not underestimate the power of that, though. Oh, no, no, yeah. I mean, you know, as an example, Star Wars. Would Star Wars have been the success it was without John Williams? You know, it's, it's Oh, yeah. talking about the music, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, just as an example. And mm. the credit sequence as well, it sets you up. Yeah. For, I, I think it's far more important than we probably... 
I think I think it's yeah, good. Actually. I wasn't selling it short. Mm, I was just no. saying that if we're going to talk about the season as a whole, yeah, that's like a superficial change. But there are much deeper changes okay. as well that I was going to come to. But go on, Mark. I was going to say I think it's good that they freshened it up because it needed something just to give it a bit of a lift. But I think changing theme tunes is a really good idea. Yeah. <laughs> I think this is the last one. We're getting personal. Tune, isn't it? Oh, is it? I think so. I could be wrong. I might have. No. I think this it's is... not going to be far off, is it? I no, I think this is... this is. No, actually, it'll be in. Uh, no, it'll be in a few weeks. We got a new theme tune coming in a few weeks. Mm. Why are we talking about our theme tune? <laughs> oh, so self-refresh. Moving on. Moving on. Okay. Well, what were we saying? Um about the superficial changes but there are deeper changes as well mm, yeah but go on you were saying about the the theme tune and the change in the titles mm. do you remember when the theme changed yes and what you thought of it initially you preferred the new theme didn't you i didn't well, i didn't prefer it but i just like i've always liked change i've never it's something i've never been afraid of and it's something i've always embraced i really liked it i thought it was exciting different new you know being a, how would i have been then i would have been about sort of seven or eight yeah that was kind of I like the new logo. I remember that at the time. Yeah. It looks, it's Very it's obvious time now when you look at it, but um, yeah. See, I was completely the opposite. I didn't like the logo, didn't like the Starfield, and didn't like the music. <laughs> no. I felt all three of them had kind of been neutered and made clean when before they were not dirty, but you know, before they were just a bit random. It, it felt, yeah. It felt like a proper sci fi series as opposed to. Uh, something just a bit cagey about what it was yeah mm. it's far more blake seven than, than but i kind of like doesn't that sum up the weirdness. 80s to a degree as well going for all this really sort of slick yeah, yeah. stylishness mm. without necessarily well, we the substance about, to back it up we said about jnt didn't we that we that he kind of you know he kind of preceded a lot of the things that would happen in the 80s in doctor who it was a very yeah. forward-looking program at the time mm. At least for a while, but season eighteen, I'm okay. Let's let's say now, where do we stand? Season seventeen versus season eighteen. Mark, you're a season seventeen. Seventeen man, for sure. me all the way. And Simon, I'm somewhere between the two. Really? Mm, yeah. You must because I can see good and bad in both. But you must have, if you were going to just pick us, we've got a list of all the stories in front. of Strongest. Us, well, yeah. There's there are stronger episodes in in but seventeen which, and eighteen. You think there are stronger ones in seventeen? Yeah, yeah. There's one. There's standout episodes, and there's City of Death, obviously, and Destiny. Well, here, okay. How old were you when the change happened, Simon? What is it? Eighty, eighty-one. It's nineteen seventy-nine. Seventy-nine, eighty. Seventy-nine, eighty. So eight to nine years old. And you'd have been just about the same? seven, seven, eight. Yeah, whereas I was no, six, seven. Ten, eleven. So I remember at the time of season 17 that, you know, this was about a year or perhaps more after I'd started noticing things like, oh, that costume's not terribly good, is it? That monster doesn't look very real. So by the time we got to season 17, it was wall-to-wall mandrels and Nymon. Mm. And, you know, <laughs> and wall-to-wall... Not very funny comedy as well. You know, the big <clears> difference I'm thinking between the two series is series, season 18 was the point at which I thought, oh, I don't actually understand what's going on in some of these stories. Mm. Oh, we'll come back to that in a minute. Yeah, yeah. I was going to, let's do season 17 a bit first. Okay, yeah. Here's my, um, I think I've sort of talked about this kind of thing in this podcast before, but let's try and get it in a nutshell. Season 17, budgets are low. Yeah. 
and you've been working with basically essentially the same sort of team of writers and directors for two or three years on budgets that are spiraling in a downwards mm. direction and you've got people who probably are running you know when you start writing you will have a few big moments of inspiration but as writing becomes a job you'll no longer have the big inspiration but you'll know how to ferret around and find the smaller and i get you get the impression with season 17 that all of those writers have kind of run out of inspiration mm. and so you've got terry nation regurgitating davros and the daleks because he never did that before no but the, <laughs> no but this is the point i'm making i know what you mean, his inspiration yeah, yeah. was gone yeah uh you've got then city of death which although it's spectacularly good mm -hmm. is actually essentially founded on you know a script by david fisher that although david fisher had just come to the program and he'd made androids of tara it was the people making the program who didn't think his script was going to work so mm -hmm. they changed it themselves so although city of death actually turns out to be a brilliant story has a difficult birth yeah as far as the script was concerned creature from the pit that is definitely david fisher in a low ebb it's fun mm. but yeah. i mean it's got one episode at the start and one episode at the end with story in it and the two episodes in the middle are absolutely empty <laughs> i mean that's a criticism you can level up quite a lot of old who really probably but but i always whenever i watch creature from the pier i always think that's the one story that you can level that claim at there are some a, nice ideas in there but they're all in the first and last episodes yeah i guess well basically in the middle you've just got two episodes of tom baker standing in a cave looking at a phallus blowing Pardon? into it creature from the pit looking at what a phallus Famously, there's a protuberance on the front of the oh, monster right. oh, that looks like. Oh, you were being it. rude then. Oh, that's all right. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought it was just me. I like the bit where he blows into it to try and communicate with it. Of course, yes. Yeah, no, I remember now. Yeah, yeah that. Yeah, it's just wrong. But nothing isn't it? else happens in those two episodes, basically, apart from him standing there doing that. Mm. But you know, I didn't want to sort of. I didn't want to go through listing the stories and sort of doing a season seventeen episode. Yeah. But to go through them briefly. Then you've got Nightmare of Eden, which is... That's some fantastic ideas in there as well. Yeah, but it's not Bob Baker and Dave Martin at the height of their powers. I really like the design and, of you know, the Mandrel, Dave Martin's not there at all. I do. But it's, I like it's oh, funny. See, I like it's... Um... But I was old enough at the time to think, <laughs> no, I mean, <laughs> you can have flared trousers, but you wouldn't have flared legs. Why wouldn't you? Why not? Well, they're aliens. Oh, they're... I used to love the... Do you remember the Acro years in, in Micronauts? Anyone remember Micronauts? No, We're just looking blankly head. at each other. No, no. Somebody out there will have remembered it. Somebody will go, yes. And I always loved the Micronauts feet. Uh, so the the Acro years. Yeah, it kind of flared so the boot would taper out to the shape of the foot. A bit like a lot of manga stuff. But yeah, very cool. Oh, but the legs didn't go conically in the wrong direction. Because on the mandrels, well, you've actually got legs that are fatter at the bottom than they are at the top. <laughs> oh, no, that's cool. That's how they've evolved, JR. Don't you know anything? It oh, is. Uh, it's not how nature evolves. <laughs> don't be silly. No, You're just I've being got ridiculous no issue with now. At all. And then Horns of Nymon, where they tried to make a virtue out of the fact that they only had cheap sets and not very many of them. So they did this whole thing where their sets would move around just as they. I think that's a really clever idea. It's a clever idea to disguise the fact that there is no money in the production. Hmm. And the scripts themselves, the dialogue wasn't the working. The design of the Nymon. Um, <clears throat> from memory, 
I think we've said before, my memory of the nine one is the target cover. So they actually yeah. look pretty cool. Yeah. But oh, recently when I did that illustration to accompany the podcast oh, yeah, when we yeah. talked about it and I actually analyzed what they actually look like and they they actually look like made out of paper mache. They're just absolutely horrible. But the idea was in the original script that that was a mask and the alien took it off and there's another alien head underneath. All oh, right. But for some reason, probably money because they couldn't afford a second alien head underneath, I guess, mm. unless it would have been a human head, but they never took the masks off. So oh, they should have used that, that in that. And then in uh, the recent Silurian episode, they should have just stuck with the face. <laughs> and, the mask. Not, and not done the mask yeah. not taking the mask yeah. off no. but in the end we end up with something made out of fuzzy felt and platform shoes and we're back on the mandrels anyway <laughs> my point about my point about season 17 is in the writing there is a paucity of proper inspiration and it it well Sharda obviously but I wasn't intending to like list the stories, Mark. I was trying to make a point. No, no. Going back to pronunciation, I thought it was Shader for years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, and, I mean... Because uh, you already saw it in text. Yeah, it's that was like all, it... um, all those... Uh, I was too old, so I got the pronunciation because I was... But, I mean, if you'd have had all the sort of Christopher Bidmead one... One word titles like Frontios and Castrovalva and Legopolis. Can you imagine what you'd have thought the pronunciation of nose was as a kid? Frontios. And we already had Lee's version of Castrovalva. We won't go back to that one. <laughs> <laughs> I had a friend who um, we read all the old Patrick Troughton stories and he goes, Oh, my favorite companion, she's Zoe. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> and I thought, No, you, you really do have a sheltered existence. <laughs> Right, the point I was trying to get to was in season 17, and this is what Tom Baker saw, and this was Tom Baker's doing, but if the writing's not quite up to scratch and the budget's not going to fund your episode so that it looks a million dollars, there's a gap you need to fill. Mm. I mean, if you look at any episode of any television series, you, there is always an angle. There are always, always, what is this episode? What is this story about? Or the same for any book or film or anything. Mm. There's always a, what is it about? And by the time you get to season 17, what is Doctor Who about? It's about that slapstick humour, basically. They're filling, they're plugging a gap. Tom Baker is understanding that these stories aren't up to scratch. And the budget's not up to scratch. Mm. And he's plugging the gap with his humour. And if you go back to season 17 now as an adult, you watch them to be amused. Yeah. You don't watch Horns of Nymon to be thrilled no. and dazzled. <laughs> you watch it. <laughs> You're absolutely right. I to mean, be watching amused. City of Death, that is the main draw to it. Having said that, as a small child, I was thrilled and dazzled by Horns of Nymon. And then watching it again as an adult, I thought, God, this is the biggest piece of garbage I've ever seen in my life. Then I watched it again recently and I actually fell back in love with it. But because for a totally different reason. Because you watch so it fun. as, mm. yeah, I know you don't like the phrase being used, but I watched it as a pantomime and it was great. It was really over the top. It's ridiculous. Yeah. It's silly and it's entertaining. Silly fun. Yeah. And that's kind of the point about season 17. Mm. Whereas in season 16 that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, where they still just about had the budget and the ideas to pull off some you know they may have run out by the end of the series mm. but they pulled off some pretty damn good stories on the way there mm. but by the time of season 17 i mean if you look at the list of stories in season 17 
I mean, City of Death, we know, has attained classic status by virtue of the casting and the Paris filming yeah. and the fact that the comedy is so well written because it's Douglas Adams. But I don't think there's a single story in season 17 that you would point to and say classic Doctor Who. As opposed to just good television. Mm. You know, there's a difference between good television and classic Doctor Who. Yeah. Where's your the Daleks or the Dalek invasion of Earth? Where's your the demons or where's your pyramids of Mars? There's not one in that series. No. There's not one there. It's full got, of memories, I have to say. Mm. Yeah, full of memories, but it's not got something there that's sort of classic Doctor Who. No. But you say that, but going back to another previous episode that we made where we were talking about what you would use as a way of introducing someone City to the new death. show. City of Death is a great show to introduce Oh, someone. absolutely. But then the, the one trouble with that is if you show them City of Death, mm. what are you going to show them afterwards? Because there's nothing else quite like it in the mm. old series. True. It's much more like the new series. Yeah. In many, many ways. Mm. And it's also with, you know, a script that's 75% Douglas Adams. It's completely distinctive. But it's not a classic Doctor Who story. It works differently to most of your sort of robots of deaths and your genesis of the Daleks. Mm. It doesn't function in the same way as those. No. So what I'm saying is they've got season 17, which, depending on your age, if you were seven or eight, was probably a whole load of fun as a kid. Yeah. If you were 12 or 13, probably wasn't. Mm. And if you watch it as a 20-year-old, you're probably thinking, oh, my God, this is seriously embarrassing. But then if you watch it as a 30-something, you can just enjoy it for the entertainment. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So then we move on to season 18. So what is the big, what's the, what's the angle on season 18? Art science. Lots St more trying to go for realism rather than fantasy. Style. Yeah. There's a lot of style over substance. Mm. Yeah. There's a lot yeah. of... One of the very first things I noticed beyond the music and the title sequence, right, was mm. June Hudson's costumes for the um, the Argolin in the Argolins in the uh, Leisure Hive. Mm. Yeah. Those big yellow dresses and the big haircuts. And I just looked at it and thought, this is not Doctor Who. No, no. I mean, it was just so radically different. And, to and it was like, you know, prior to that, you'd had races of monsters, right? But if you ended up on Tara, mm. you didn't have everybody on Tara wearing identical costumes in the same way as everybody <laughs> on Argolis did. Well, that story also, I think I'm right in saying, was one of the first uh, TV shows to use Quantel. Yes. Um, which was quite a different look to the program as well. In terms of the special effects. Yeah. Yeah. So they're, they're obviously pushing, and J&T, for some of his perhaps lacking ability in terms of being a showrunner. I think he was pushing to use these new pieces of technology that were coming out and trying to make it a distinctive program. And I certainly think it succeeded in making a shift away from what it had been before, but I'm not necessarily sure I enjoy it compared to what went before. But then you get all that in the leisure hive mm. and then you get Megalos, where yeah. you've got one of the cheapest looking jungle sets ever made. <laughs> The and makeup then, on Tom Baker is very, very good. Oh, it yes, is. But yes. then you've got episode four where they're all walking around on blue screen CSO. And okay, mm. for once, the blue screen is moving. That was the yeah, big that was another big innovation, wasn't it? Yeah. But it's still a blue screen. Mm. And those models are not built to a big enough scale that they in any way sell themselves on and the And going screen. back to what we were just saying before, is not necessarily the episode you would introduce a fan of New Who to the old series mm. with, I don't think. Megalos. No. 
Oh my god, Mark! No. It's not a fan. You, it's not an episode you'd show a fan of the classic series. Oh no, that's what I mean. <laughs> cried out loudly. <laughs> you know what I mean? Though, it's, new series. It's, it's the complete antithesis of what we've just been talking about. Anyway, going back to, I said, what is the angle on season eighteen? What is the thing that fills the hole? What is, you know, the thread that unites the stories? And you said, Mark, uh, realistic science. They're going for Realism hard science. And hard yeah. science. Mm. I would argue that actually. I mean, you're probably going to say to me, uh, why? Because everybody always says it's all about the hard science. That's what Christopher Bidmead always talks about. John Nathan Turner always says, let's get the science back into the fiction, Mm -hmm. you know, when he's talking about season 18. But they don't, do they? I mean, you go into the leisure hive and he's talking about tachyons and all this kind of stuff. And what's it about? It's about, oh, let's take the guy who's middle-aged and age him up till mm. he's really old with a big mm. grey beard and yeah, stuff like that. Yeah. It's not taking hard science and making something that looks like hard science fiction. No, it's not. It's, it's, it's quite sort Star of like, Trek, really, isn't it? Yeah, it's sort of... Mm. Uh, the whole of season 18 talks about the hard science and then shows you magic. <laughs> Look at Legopolis. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a bunch of old guys sitting in alcoves, chanting, reading out numbers and holding together... The fabric of the universe. <laughs> no hard science. And, you know, that's a Christopher Bidmead script. Mm. Also in that script, you've got, oh, Masters in the TARDIS. How do we get rid of him? Oh, I know what we'll do. We will materialise and open the doors under the Thames so that the TARDIS gets filled with water and flushes him out. That's not the most... Re- I mean, oh my God, there's a fly in the car. I know what I'll do. I'll drive it into the pond. <laughs> That'll get rid of the fly. <clears throat> I mean, Christopher Bidmead. For all his talk of hard science, he was a nutter, wasn't he? The views expressed by J.R. Southall are those of J.R. Southall <laughs> and not of Starburst magazine or its affiliates. But you look at season 18 and um, what it fills that gap with is what Stephen Moffat's currently filling his gap with, to coin a phrase, and that is fairy tales there's fairy tale logic at work throughout season 18 Mm. and it's also filled with like fairy tale castles look at state of decay Mm. look at warrior's gate yeah look at full circle the spaceship in there in full circle the spaceship is a fairy tale castle keeper of trakan look at legopolis that's a society founded on the basis of the fairy tale castle Mm. he has for all his talk of hard science christopher bidmead has an obsession with fairy tale castles. They're there throughout the season, and this fairy tale logic is infused in just about every story. Not Megalos, perhaps, mm. because although that's got a cactus that turns into a man he's, who looks like a, a cactus. He's almost a victim and... of what he professes, because if you take yeah. that away, if you take away this argument, oh, it's all going to be hard science, it's actually really good. Yeah, this is the thing about season 18 for me, is I really don't like it because it's very, very dry. Yeah. Mm. And if you look at, for instance, Legopolis, which should have been the big, the glorious, the melodramatic last story for the most popular Doctor Who to finish on. And instead, you've got something really somber and dry. Quite dour. Yeah. It never builds anywhere. And then all of a sudden, because of this imposed changeover of staff as well, You've got this situation where, in amongst all this dryness, you've got 
you know, suddenly the Watcher turns up with Nyssa. Yeah. Yeah. So it's got some bizarre moments mm. as well. And this, the uh, episode three cliffhanger, which is the episode three cliffhanger from Terror of the Autons, pretty much. Except in Terror of the Autons, it's about three quarters of the way through episode four. It's the moment where the Doctor and the Master shake hands. You know, it's in Claws of Axos mm. as well. Yeah. I mean, it's being sold in season 18 to an audience of people who 99% of whom would not be able to remember Terror true, of the yeah. Autons and Claws of Axos. Mm. But it's still that big cliffhanger. Is mm. It's not something new for Doctor Who. No. And it's... Lugopolis is... Do you think he was trying... He, was, he, well, he just, just thought, oh, maths is so exciting. Everyone will find this exciting because maths is so exciting. And he gets so involved in the maths and also um, in the science so that he obviously can't see the fairy tale that his story actually does just lots of in weird, theory, weird things. Been, that... It could have been brilliant in theory. Oh, he could have. I mean, Douglas Adams was obsessed with technology and computers and things like yeah. that, but that doesn't sort of uh, come across in his writing... Certainly of who, anyway. No, no. He he goes more for that sort of uh, oddball comedy. But, here's, okay, here's a poser for you. Would, obviously not quite the same, but a similarly themed version of the Pirate Planet have made for a good swan song for Tom Baker. At the end of that story, he'd have been saving entire planets from being crushed to the size of footballs. Mm. And it would have been a mad story filled with daft special effects and over-the-top characterization and a robot parrot fighting a robot dog. Yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't that have made for a better last story for Tom Baker, perhaps? Mm. I mean, not exactly as it stands, but something along those lines. Maybe a little bit too ridiculous. But, uh... but he was a ridiculous doctor. Yeah. You know what I mean? Maybe somewhere between the two, because Legopolis... Yeah. yeah, well, I, yeah I can watch it again, yeah. but it just, it's, you know, they've they've gone so far into that kind of doom-laden, you know, right from the start you got the cloister bell going off and it's, they'd start talking about entropy. Block and, computation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it starts quite nicely. Yeah. The idea of the TARDIS yeah. inside itself and this sort of infinite recursion. I love that, yeah. That is yeah. cool. And the fact it gets darker and darker as you go further and further into yeah. the run. Yeah, that's very that was really great. spooky. And for the 80s, you know, where everything was lit so brightly, it was really nice to see some sort of um, artistic use of that and a bit of atmosphere coming into it. Mm. Absolutely. And then there's still plenty. There's the bit where they do the thing on the TARDIS and it shrinks, and then you've got Tom Baker inside this tiny yeah. Yeah. TARDIS. Yeah. I mean, there's some great ideas. Mm. Yes. And even the sort of mad ideas are still sort of great ideas. Lugopolis has the potential to be a really good story, but it's just really boring. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And I think that kind of is Christopher Bidmead's problem, or Christopher Bidmead and John Nathan Turner's problem is that they've kind of sucked all the fun out of Doctor Who. Mm, mm. If you look at something like Full Circle, mm. and I want to come back to Full Circle in a minute to make that point I was going to make 20 minutes ago. We haven't mentioned Adric for a while, have we, on the show? No. <laughs> Full Circle has got a nice central idea Yes, that would have worked. It's, I mean, it's a hard science fiction idea. It is the one story in that season that mm. actually is like proper science fiction, yeah. as opposed to just fiction with a little bit of science thrown in mm. but after a really spooky and atmospheric first episode it just kind of gets really dull with just a lot of people standing around in corridors talking to each other for three episodes mm. and it kind of by the time you get to the big revelation at the end of episode four that the spiders are the marshmen and the marshmen are the humans yeah you've kind of lost the momentum mm. Maybe it would have been better as three episodes. 
Well, How, maybe, maybe going back would... to a costume design, the Marshmen masks Great. were yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Neck down. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> and then you've got all these settlers all dressed in, you know, pretty much identical costumes. Yes. It's, you know, Lee was talking about this a few weeks ago when we talked about the costumes in the 60s and against, say, what Russ T. Davis was doing. But my assertion is so much better to put people in clothes than it is to put them in costumes. Yes. Mm. Anyway, so we're on full circle. Here's the point I was going to make. If the regeneration scene in Destiny of the Daleks kind of epitomizes the approach that Douglas Adams and Graham Williams and Tom Baker mm. were taking in season 17, which is if there's a hole, fill it with comedy so it's not a hole anymore. In season 18... Here's what I'm going to suggest is what epitomizes that for me. It's the East Space trilogy. Mm, yeah. Mm. Right. At the start of Full Circle, they put the TARDIS, Christopher Bidmead, because he's organizing these stories, puts the TARDIS into East Space. And then has a bog standard science fiction story that has yeah. nothing to do with East Space. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And then in your next story, you've got State of Decay, a story that would actually logically make more sense if it took place in our universe. Yeah. Than it would in East Space well, because in East Space you've got to try and explain how this spaceship came to be in East Space in the first place. Whereas really, if it just took place on a backwater planet at the sort of far reaches of the universe, yeah, yeah. this vampire and nobody knew it was there because it was just. But to put it in East Space kind of takes the logic out of it. And I know they use East Space as an explanation for why the vampire's not oh, been found. Well, yeah, yeah. But I mean, that's just an excuse, not an explanation. Mm. And then you get to Warrior's Gate, which then becomes the final part in this trilogy of stories that have had nothing to do with each other. Mm-hmm. I mean, literally nothing to do with each other. No, yeah. A trilogy works because it's got elements that thread throughout the three stories so that the third story in the trilogy makes sense of the other two. Mm. Yeah. You know, yeah. Back to the Future, we talked about on the radio show we also do. Third part in that made perfect sense of the other two, right? Mm. It worked. Mm. Warrior's Gate, I mean, I like Warrior's Gate better than any other story that season. I do. But it is not the third part of a trilogy. It's a story that exists perfectly well by itself. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, yes, anyone out there who hasn't watched any of those stories, the East Space trilogy is available as a DVD box set. Mm -hmm. Don't expect it to be one big story. No, it's just three it completely unrelated stories that all mention eSpace. I really yeah. love the direction in um, Warrior's Gate. Yeah. Oh, let me just finish what I was saying, though, and then we'll talk about Warrior's Gate mm-hmm. in a minute. My point being, the approach that Christopher Bidmead takes in season 18 is to come up with this big idea, eSpace, and then slot it into the season, bang it in there, hammer it in there, whether it fits or not. Mm. Warrior's mm. Gate. E-Space should have just been four standalone episodes. You could have told that story with them arriving in E-Space at the start of Warrior's Gate, and then four weeks later, the story would have been told. But he had to, you know, not for any rhyme or reason, just because he felt he wanted to, he bangs that E-Space thing into Full Circle and State of Decay as well, which makes a nonsense of those two stories. I mean, State of Decay was written well before... Bidmead even got involved in the uh, in the program. Yeah. And Full Circle, again, makes more sense if it takes place in normal space, because otherwise, where does that spaceship come from? You know, it's that's the point I was trying to make is, Christopher Bidmead, it's all big ideas and no idea how to make them work. Mm. 
which you know Logopolis I suppose with State of Decay they are in one respect they do try and tie it in as much as they're lost in eSpace they're trying to find their way out and they think that if they can track down um, the uh, the original Earth settlers who crashed on the on the planet they can find their way back out of eSpace so but, it's, but it's tenuous you know, and it's, it's illogical not, as well yeah. because you know then you've got to come up with an explanation for how the Earth settlers get there in the first place. It, it, it's charged vacuum in Boitment. This is the, it's the whole yeah. thing. It's <laughs> the whole Star I mean. Trek thing as well. You yeah. get bogged oh, down in this yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, There's no place for it. State of Decay is a story about magic. Mm. And it takes place in our universe. <laughs> it chased just by as bats. Much yeah, <laughs> Maintain is the worst cliffhanger ever. <laughs> oh no, I like that. Oh, oh dear. but then you've got the spaceship that goes up, and you know the state. It wouldn't have end. been so bad if they cut out the stock footage, but they got these really awful, flappy sort of models just <laughs> limping around on the floor yeah. and not really causing much of a threat. Oh, all it would need to make it worse is the Doctor hanging from an umbrella. I have to say, in that story, is one of the best makeup effects when the uh, the three who rule finally get their comeuppance and they kind of decompose in front of your eyes. That's yes. really cool. Yeah, yeah. That's very cool. Um, I'll, Can we talk anything of Keeper of Trarkin? I think it's yeah. a, I don't, I think it's an underrated episode. Uh, oh, story. yeah, but we're not doing the season 18 episode. We'll talk more in depth about the yeah. stories when we do a season 18 But it, but it does come back to the style, the style of the uh, And Going back to what we were saying about Warrior's Gate just now, I mean, the direction on that is quite different from anything from the previous season. And that is quite a sharp relief to the, the previous year. Well, that's Paul Joyce. And mm. not, as many will have you believe, Graham Harper. Wasn't there some sort of issue where he... Paul Joyce got kicked out of the studio for mm. like three hours on one of the recording sessions and Graham Harper, as his assistant, had to take over. But the reason why um, Paul Joyce got kicked out is because he was doing all the stuff that we now think of as very Graham Harper-like, and that's mm. where Graham Harper learned it. Right. Paul Joyce was doing lots of single camera setups, um, lots of shots where the camera was pointing offset, so you've got actual studio in the shot. All sorts of things like this. He was doing lots of technical stuff that was taking a lot of time. He wasn't getting it in the can. And, you know, eventually they kicked him out of the studio for three hours, got Graham Harper in. You know, this is the way I understand it. Mm. Got Graham Harper in. Graham Harper quickly tore through a load of stuff that needed to be done. Yeah. And then, you know, the argument was kind of ironed out. Joyce came back and finished it off mm -hmm. and never got asked back to Doctor Who because he went over his time and over his budget. And if you go over your time and over your budget on your first story, you don't get to work on that program again mm -hmm. at the BBC. Mm. As kind of Warrior's Gate, you know, I've obviously got some of the facts wrong there. I don't know if it was three hours and it was one afternoon, but, you know, the gist of it was yeah. that. And that's where Graham Harper learned his stuff, mm. you know, from watching people like I think Paul he, Joyce. Well, I think doing... he was pretty friendly with Dougie Camfield as well, which is... Yeah, but Douglas Camfield doesn't do any of that stuff. Mm. All that stuff that Graham Harper does in the Caves of Androzani is all stuff that Paul Joyce was doing in Warriors Gate, mm. and Douglas Camfield doesn't do any of that stuff in, you know, Terror of the Zygons or whatever. Mm. I mean... You know, Graham Harper doubtless learnt things from Doug Camfield about pace and action. Yeah. But the technical stuff. All sort of low camera angles and that sort of stuff. Is yeah, very much... all the stuff about the cameras is what he got off Paul Joyce. And all that handheld stuff as well in Warrior's Gate. Well, I think it's brilliant. Where he's, where he's actually in the heart of the, 
the actual scene as well, isn't he? Rather yeah. than being up in the gallery, he's yeah. actually down there. Yeah. On the floor. Yeah. Directing it. Was that something Paul Joyce did or I think so. Don't know that much about it. I'm sure somebody will email in. Mm. Or we'll look it up. Anyway, we talked far too long about Warriors Gate now. Yeah. <laughs> uh apart from to say Keep of Track and you're gonna talk about again a story about magic and fairy tales. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And written by it's a poet. It's a legend, isn't it? Written by a poet as well. Yeah. <clears throat> Johnny Byrne, he was, uh, he was a poet, first oh, and right. foremost, and then a television writer, secondary. Yeah. He worked on Space 1999, and I don't know which episodes he did, because I don't know Space 1999, but some of Space 1999 was pretty far out, actually, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. So I should imagine that's probably more like Johnny Byrne's stuff. He does Keeper of Traken. And then, of course, later on, He's asked back and given Warriors Gate. I mean, Warriors of the Deep. Sorry. Mm. That's not your story to give to your poet warrior, is it? No. So, but in between, he did Ark of Infinity. And for all the problems that there are with Ark of Infinity, I do think there's a kind of lyrical quality to the dialogue. I watched it recently, and I was actually quite taken with some of the dialogue, even though the story itself sucked a big fat egg. he's obviously given the story to write and writes it to the best of his ability and so the writing the quality of the writing is actually quite nice even though the story is just useless i know yeah but keeper trakin is probably then your one nice example of johnny burn doing something johnny burn like yeah and it, it is actually probably after warriors gate my favorite story in that season because it's the most self-contained in that it's not got lots of ideas stuffed into it <clears throat> until right at the very end where they get out of it by flicking a switch. You know, big deus ex machina at the end there. Yeah. They, you know, they turn off the thing and it's, oh, save the day. But right <laughs> up until that moment, Keeper of Trials. It's quite absorbing, isn't it? Yeah. Like, again, coming back to the, the design work as well. You feel yeah. like he's they, they've arrived in a world that is, as you say, self-contained and... But then the big difference between 17 and 18 is 17 is all sci-fi with spaceships and uh, cheap sets and silly costumes on, you know, spacemen, mm. basically. Uh, is there a single story in there that doesn't have a silly silly costume on a, a spaceman from a sort of cheap special effects spaceship? No, no, it pretty runs through the whole gamut of them. Well, that's season 17 for you in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. Actually, Sharda would have been the one story that did Oh, I don't know. Oh, no, 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 of course, Skagra. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That has got to be the, yeah. the granddaddy yeah. of them all. Yeah, you know, you're right, you're right. So there you go, season 17. Cheap spacesuits on cheap spacemen in cheap spaceships. Season 18, for all Christopher Bidmead's talk of hard science and John Nathan Turner's talk of putting the science back into the science fiction... Season 18 is all fairy tale castles. It's and... all burgundy as well, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> yeah. It's really burgundy. After the first two stories, it is. Yeah. 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 Maybe not, first... not, just, not just Tom Baker's costume, but the... Uh... No, Keeper of Traken, definitely. Yeah. State of Decay, definitely. Mm. There's a big sort of burgundy feel to it. But it's all fairy tale. Mm. Mm. Season 18. That's the really odd thing about it. Yeah. So you've gone from... Uh, a season where the comedy has become, you know, I keep saying it plugs the hole, you know, for want of a better explanation, to a season where they take the comedy right out and plug that hole, think they're going to plug that hole with science and science fiction, 
and actually plug it with magic and fairy tales. Season 18 is very Stephen Moffat in that respect. Mm -hmm. Some of the ideas in season 18 are not that far removed from Amy Pond's, you know, clapping her hands and clicking her heels and bringing her doctor back to life at the end of um, The Big Bang. Yeah, but I think Moffat doesn't allow that element of it to be... He still leaves the humour in there as well. And I think that's where the the key difference, difference, yeah. Yeah, the big difference. But essentially, in terms of stories or the the elements that you bring together to tell your stories, there's quite a bit of the sort of fairy tale element and mixed together with a bit of hard science. So you've got kind of got this uneasy mixture between fairy tales and reality. Mm. But that's what's... Stephen Moffat's first series, series five, reminds me a lot of season 18. And I think season five is also, I love Moffat's second series, but I think his first is very inconsistent in the same way as season 18 was. So I draw a big parallel between those two series. Mm. And the, the biggest part of that parallel is season 18, although it behaves much like a lot of other Doctor Who series in which it's got seven standalone stories you know a number of standalone stories you know watching it back afterwards you definitely get from right from the very start there's kind of that somber tom baker running on flat it's almost as if the regeneration is programmed in from the start right yeah 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 and then in stephen moffat's first series right from the moment matt smith turns up in amelia's bedroom you've got the thread running right throughout the series to the point at which he has to sacrifice himself and then she has to wish him back into existence, which is not that far removed from the regeneration at the end of Legopolis, no, no. where the Doctor sacrificed himself and it's the three companions are there and, you know, they're not wishing. But then you get that sequence where he sees all of his life flashing before his yeah. eyes that we've not had in a regeneration before. No which is not unlike that sequence where Stephen Moffat sends Matt Smith back through the series. Yes. And if they'd had a bit more money, they were going to do more of that, but they had to cut that back. So actually the parallels are even slightly closer than, you know, what I was saying before. And Legopolis and the Big Bang are kind of, for me, a really unsuccessful and a really successful way of telling a similar story in a way. Mm-hmm. But the Watcher in the Regeneration. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is a perfect example of Christopher Bidmead's way of doing Doctor Who. <clears throat> Perhaps even more so than um, the East Space thing, where he just hammered this idea into two other people's stories for the sake of it. The Watcher, you do a regeneration, and this is only the second time we've had regeneration, because the first one was just, who knows what it was, but it was a change. And then the second one is enforced by the Time Lords. Yeah. And in Planet of the Spiders, you see regeneration properly mm-hmm. as a regeneration for the first time. And this is only the first one since it's established and already they feel the need to change it. And Christopher Bidmead feels the need to add in this character of the Watcher who preempts the Doctor's regeneration by telling him about it in episode one so that he knows it's going to happen in episode four. And this Watcher is... Like the Veil Yard mm. in Trial of a Time Lord is an aspect of the Doctor that's removed itself from the Doctor to keep an eye on the Doctor until he regenerates. What's he there for? Christopher Bidmead obviously has this idea yeah. that if you've got a ghost 
of the future Doctor watching over the old Doctor, it gives you a really spooky ghost story kind of aspect. Mm. Mm. Well, where's the hard science in that? Yeah. Again, you've gone it's into not a the bad realms. Idea, of, isn't no, it? but you've gone into the realms of the supernatural. Yeah, but because he's also trying to do the hard science. Yeah, with all the maths and all this block transfer computation and everything else, then the whole watcher thing becomes an element that doesn't fit into the story anymore. Mm. It's got mm. all these elements going on, mm. and his regeneration. You know, if you're a writer on Doctor Who, how many writers have there been on Doctor Who? How many of them have had the opportunity? To do a regeneration, you don't mess it up. No. <laughs> Especially for the longest serving doctor as well. Yeah, you mm. really pull out all the stops to make it something that's coherent. And Legopolis has got no coherency whatsoever. I remember being enthralled as a kid because at the age I was, I'd never seen a regeneration. So was the, coolest, is... the coolest thing was the master making little dolls. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the TCE. Yeah. Yeah. And um, then the uncoolest thing is the photographic cutout of the master in episode four. When oh, the yeah. His life. Yeah, in a doorway. Oh, that's oh. bad. Or, um, of course, when he makes his final fall from the top of the uh, the satellite dish and they all sort of follow his And drop. one of them follows at a different time to the <laughs> yeah. others. Have you not seen that, that, Simon? <laughs> what, what, the heads move? Yeah, the, the, uh, the three companions are watching him fall and then two of them sort of look down at the same time and the third one's just slightly behind. <laughs> See, if that was George Lucas, he'd edit it afterwards. He probably would, yeah. They should have thrown an orange in the air and I should have followed the orange down so that they were all looking at the same thing. Was Adric late? Was it Adric who no, was No, I think it was Tegan. Tegan, was yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Tegan. We haven't Jet really lag. talked about the companions, but I'm in for another time, the companions. We're talking about the storytelling. If we're, um, can I just say that <laughs> when we finally do Chris Falkerson's season, I want to talk about the end of the world because I think it's a really underrated episode. But... I think I it's love it. really Douglas Adams. Oh, yes, it is. And I love it. I absolutely love that yeah. episode. Uh, right. We've not actually read any, but I was intending to punctuate this podcast with people's emails and I haven't. So let's quickly run through a few emails and then we'll call it a night. Uh, Mr. Peter. Oh, did I read this one? I did, actually. Raf Edwards. Sorry, Mr. Peter. You thought you were going to get another email, but I've already read yours out. So, so good you read it twice. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, Raph Edwards I watched series 17 series he says which is no okay we'll come back to that in a minute I watched series 17 on YouTube and bought series 18 so that was a clear difference I did see differences between the two they seemed a decade apart somehow I think the stories and effects and polishing were so much improved in series 18 and were building up to a good crescendo however it was clear that Tom was on his way out and wasn't central to the shows somehow in series 18 the series seemed very much about clearing out all of the Series 17 actors and with the new additions coming in, outshining Tom, he says. Which I suppose, given that Tom Baker was given such a subdued performance, yeah. in a way the focus was a lot more on the companions, mm. the new ones coming in. Yeah. Um, that said, I have enjoyed re-watching them. I think Series 19 is much improved, though, and Peter Davison made a refreshing change. To be honest, Tom was a, uh, was a bit of a loon, wasn't he, really? <laughs> he says... <laughs> Um, Sookie Kark. First hey, of all, why are you calling it seasons when you know that we British call it series? It's true. Going back to Raf's email in which he does call it series, and that's true. But do you know why? Because when mm. Doctor Who fandom first sprang up, mm. there hadn't been any fandoms of that kind of programmes in Britain. 
they took all their terminology from America. Okay. So when they first Star started, Trek to blame again. Yeah, so when they started talking about the discrete series of Doctor Who, yeah. they just used the expression season. And so now Doctor Who, I think, is the only program in Britain that we think of in seasons, whereas everything else we think of in series. Sucky doesn't. No, obviously. <laughs> neither does Raph. Um, on season 17, the final... This is Sucky. The final Graham Williams produced series that was script edited by the mighty Douglas Adams, you can tell straight away that Tom Baker is enjoying the role. By this time, he had a companion, Romana, that he had started to love travelling with and was his equal in most things and superior in others, but still deferred to him in making decisions most of the time. The humour was more outlandish, and some of the dire situations could be diffused by a quip or a sarky comment. The villains were not exactly camp, but were bordering on the edges. For instance, Sol Deed and Lady Adrasta. Uh, the productions were just as they had been in previous series, with the exception of City of Death, which had foreign location filming, but still looked cheap. Basically just a tourist guide version of Paris. He's talking about the indoor sequences there. Sharda, the missing story. Would it have been a classic? I'm not sure. I've seen the remastered videotape version and listened to the audio versions with Tom Berger and Paul McGann and it doesn't hold up that well. I've seen the animated version and I thought it did, but that's for another time. Season, season, series 18. Sookie Kark still. The first of the JNT era with Christopher H. Bidmead as script editor, you can tell the difference between the two series straight away as the Doctor is in more restrained mode with a darker version of his usual usual clothes. Yeah, I've been doing this episode too long. I'm slurring now. <laughs> <laughs> Lay off the booze, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, well, stop putting it in Get front of me, Mark. Mark. <laughs> Tom Baker's stories in this series were more serious in tone with Megloss being the exception. The companion's role changed from being Romana, a knowledgeable time lady, and K-9, a supercomputer, to Adric, a math genius with no social skills, <laughs> Tegan, somebody who was in the wrong place at the wrong time, and Nyssa, another genius who was shoehorned into Legopolis. And it's true. Mm. He wasn't even supposed to be there. They yeah. made her a late addition. and You can tell. Yeah. There's a hole in the story where her character's supposed to be. Uh, but bless Sarah Sutton. She's lovely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think she's a little bit hard done by there, really. It went from two narratives, the Doctor and Romana, to, in the last story, three or four narratives just to keep everybody on screen. Warrior's Gate is a story that would never have been filmed the previous year. It was serious science fiction, even though it still doesn't make sense to me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Doesn't mean you can't like it. No. I'd argue that Full Circle was a more serious science fiction story, actually. Yeah, yeah. Warrior's Gate's got a little bit of the magic in there, Actually, quite a lot of the magic in there. Yeah, about the time sensitives and yeah, yeah. stuff. Yeah, uh, But then again, it's yeah. got all this sort of Christopher Bidmead, you know, the spaceship being really heavy because it's made of whatever and all this kind of stuff. So it's kind dwarf of... Dwarf Star Alloy. That's the one, Dwarf mm. Star Alloy. Uh, again, a real w- weird mixture of ideas. I think they just knit together slightly better in Warrior's Gate, perhaps. Um, there was hardly any humour, and it was a serial that needed the viewer to think a bit more than booing the bad guy of the week, which, of course, had probably been the major problem with season 17. Mm. The production values also changed with the addition of the visual graphics coming more to the fore, the Leisure Hive being the biggest user. The return of the Master also uh, also brought a villain for the Doctor to battle over a number of stories which hadn't occurred since the first three years. Anthony Ainley being superb as Tremaz in Creeper of, Keeper of Traken and as the Master in Legopolis before he became a bit too silly in the Davison years. 
Thank you, Suki, and thank you to Mr. Peter and Steve and Mark and Raf and uh, Raf. So, shall we uh, for cl- classic series name the seasons series, and for the new series, we call them seasons? No, we do it the other way around because otherwise you're just <laughs> going to confuse things. <clears throat> he did bring out the master there. We've not talked about that. Another no. trilogy yeah. that actually is not a trilogy at all. No. It's just three completely unrelated stories with one character that ties up between them. Mm. But they, two of them are scripts by Christopher Bidmead. And so for some reason, it is thought of as a trilogy again. What a brilliant idea, the, the Master's TARDIS being a grandfather clock. That, for me, is more iconic than the pillar. and then I like that. Yeah, and I like the grandfather clock a lot. Mm. <clears throat> I got one. I got the Keeper of Dragon set. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's lovely. And back to those figures again. We are. Right, I think we should call it a night. And uh, let these good people get back to, you know, whatever it is they were getting back to after they finished well, they'll be in the Well, will they be in the midst of the new series? Uh, yeah, by the time this episode goes out, it should be uh, between dinosaurs and gunslingers, I think. Yeah. Or maybe even after that. I don't know. I can't remember. Could be the week after the gunslinger. We don't know, but we've not seen any of them anyway. So I was JR. I was Mark. I was Simon. And I was Lee. Good night. <laughs> us by email via blueboxpodcast at yahoo.co.uk yeah!